Welcome to our podcast, Doing It Right. This podcast reveals authentic stories from successful leaders doing it right. It's about their journey to become a leader, their choices, motivations, and lessons. In essence, how they built successful personal brands. Your host is Valerie Sokolowski, author of eight leadership books and nationally known as an authority on executive presence and personal branding. Let's get started. Here's Valerie. The book is called <laughs> Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage, Sinatra with Sinatra by Tom Dreesen. And I have him on the show today. I can't even believe it. Let me just tell you, this man is incredible. And I'm so honored, I mean that, to have someone of his stature, a world-renowned comedian who has worked with the greats, including Frank Sinatra, fronting his show for 14 years, 50 plus times, I think that's the right number, on Letterman, fronting Letterman when he wasn't there, on Johnny Carson, in front of five presidents, you know, what can I say? Let's just get right into welcoming Tom Dreesen from California. Yes, it's so good to talk to you, Valerie. Uh, we had a great pre-interview, unlike uh, none I've ever had before in my show business career, so I'm excited about talking oh, to you now. Thank you. You know, that means a lot. And, and the audience can see in, uh, in the background that fabulous art. Uh, it's an oil painting, right, of you and Frank Sinatra? Yeah, a, a, an artist from Argentina, uh, Buenos Aires, uh, named uh, Marcelo Nero, uh, is a famous artist there. And he painted this painting of Frank and I on stage together. And it's something I'll always treasure. So we're using it as a background today. Well, there's a lot for you to treasure. You know what? Let's just get right into, first of all, the fact that you're on the show. I have to tell the audience how this happened. Do you believe in Sarah Dippity? Sarah's her first name. Dippity's the last Tom. Well, yeah, I told you I dated Miss Dippity for many years. She, Sarah's a great, great gal. Well, serendipity really happened. I was just calling my friend Darren Grubb to see how he and Lindsay and the family were doing a week or so ago. And he mentioned that a book he had co-authored was absolutely just getting to the marketplace with huge success. And it's this book, which we're going to talk about. And when he told me about you and the book, I said to Darren, oh, Darren, is there any way that this famous person could possibly grace me by being on the show? And Darren said, without a doubt. And I said, really? He said, sure, here's his number. Now, I've tried to get some other actors and so forth on the show, and I've had to go through agents, and nothing happened. Well, guess what? Tom, you answered the phone. You spoke with me. Thank you for talking about the pre-interview for over an hour. And we just honestly almost became friends before we even saw each other on camera. Uh, why don't you just start talking about your time with Frank Sinatra? Because you're doing a huge show. <laughs> we'll be doing it again, talking about the laughter and the uh, time that you were with him. What was that like? Well, it, it's hard to describe. This is one, if not the greatest career show business has ever known. Frank Sinatra was a, a legend, a living legend. And to be in that rarefied air for a little kid from the south side of Chicago was just something amazing to me. Um, something I, could, I, I always had a hard time getting used to. 
Um, one reason I stayed with Frank Sinatra for, for so many years is he never knew how much in awe of him I was because mm -hmm. I never let him see that side, you know. Uh, he was, he was uh, on stage, this incredible performer, this man who went to the studio 1,431 times, who recorded over 100 albums, um, who uh, had 1,200 original songs written just for him. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, uh, and, and, and when he walked out on the stage, before he even sang a note, the audience would go wild. Mm -hmm. just, he would just, as we did in Dallas, Texas, where you're at right now, the Reunion Center, um, it, just his mere presence walking out on stage, people would just rise to their feet and cheer and cheer and cheer. So, and then to fly in his private jet with him all over the world and, and to uh, stay at his home six times a year, you know, uh, so many times while I was doing this, it, it was almost like a pinch me, uh, pinch myself time because it's hard to believe that this boy, how I first heard of Frank Sinatra, I was a little boy living in, in a shack with eight brothers and sisters. And every night I would take my shoe shine box and I'd go to all the taverns in my neighborhood to shine shoes to help feed my brothers and sisters. Um, and on the jukeboxes in all those bars was Frank Sinatra singing. And now I'm flying with him in his private jet and he's sock, he used to like to sock me on the jaw. Love you, pal. He'd say, hey, we're going to knock him dead tonight, Tommy. We're on our way into Cincinnati or into Dallas or into New York City or Boston or, you know, Los Angeles or, you know, uh, my hometown, Chicago, you know, and it won't knock him dead, Tommy. And I sometimes say, I can't believe that I'm actually flying with Frank Sinatra and he's saying, we're going to knock, we are going to knock him dead. Uh, again, I view all of life from that little boy with the shoe shine box in the cold snow going from bar to bar, you know, trying to make money to help feed my brothers and sisters. No matter where I was in my life, if I close my eyes, I see that little boy with the shoeshine box. And that's how I perceived it. And so that's why I pinched myself so many times. Well, Tom, you know, this book, it was so well written and it has so much about your background. Go back to when you were that little boy, one of eight, the south side of Chicago, which is not uh, Bel Air. And when was the first sort of nudge that let you know that maybe you too could do something special and maybe be a comedian? In answer to your question, Valerie, when I first knew that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, was the first time I ever went on stage and something I had written got a laugh when I was with the comedy team. And that moment, it was almost like one of those B movies where the dark clouds open up and, a, and the sun bursts through. My whole being went, yes, oh yes, this is what I want to do. I want to be a stand-up comedian. Uh, I'd been wandering aimlessly my, all my life up to that point. But that night I knew that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a stand-up comedian. And the next, that was a Friday night. That was my first time on stage. The next morning was a Saturday morning. I, I couldn't sleep all night long. I laid awake all night long saying, this is what I want to do. I got up in the morning and I rushed to, went to church in my neighborhood where I had been an altar boy when I was a kid, where I sang in the choir, where my mom sang in the choir. And I, I, you know, I, I prayed. I said, there was no service there. There was no mass or anything. It was, I was the only one in the church. And I got on my knees. I said, God, now I know what I want to do. I want to be a stand-up comedian. If you can please let me make my living as a stand-up comedian, I'll never ask for anything else. I'll do charities. I was making all these promises because I, I knew this is what I want, wanted to do, you know. And, uh, and uh, you know, all my prayers have been answered. 
for 50 years now, I've been making a living as a stand-up comedian. Uh, the thought that you could make a living making people laugh overwhelmed me. I, I just couldn't fathom that, that you can make a living making people laugh. And so I set my, my goals and my mind on that. And that's what I wanted. And I put my prayers behind it. And I had ups and downs and struggles like you've never heard before. Uh, you know, and they're in the book. But I just kept, every time I got knocked down, I got back up again. And that's what, why the book is called Still Standing. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, because uh, it's a double entendre. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a stand-up comedian 50 years. But I, every time I got knocked down, I got back up again. Wow. Well, there's a message right there. Now, that scrappy little kid is still a scrappy adult. And when all of this COVID is ended to the point that you can get back on stage, you're doing a show called An Evening of Laughter and Stories of Frank Sinatra. Is that right? Tell us a little bit about yes. that show. I keep changing it. You know, it's called an evening of laughter and memories of Sinatra, or the evening of laughter and stories of Sinatra. Sometimes I call it the man who made Sinatra laugh. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I may, because his book is selling so well, I may start calling the show Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. But it's basically <clears throat> a 90-minute show that the, the, they're playing Sinatra music in the theater and the, all the lights go down low and on screen, is a three and a half minute video that comes up that's narrated by a friend of mine who passed away, Dennis Farina. And it's a three and a half minute video of my life. And that introduces me. I walk out from the film and I do stand up comedy for maybe 25, 30 minutes, getting the people laughing and everything. And then I wander over to a bar uh, that's on the stage with a bottle of Jack Daniels. And, and uh, I, you know, I, I tell a funny story at the bar and all the lights go out in the theater. And people are laughing and all the lights called and on the screen, Frank Sinatra singing. It's quarter to three. There's no one in the place except you and me. Set them up, Joe. I got a little story. It's a saloon song that Frank would sing. And when he gets to the chorus, make it one for my baby and one more for the road, he goes off screen and the light hits me. And now I'm in a bar and I've come home and the audience is in a bar with me. And I tell them the first time I heard that voice, I was eight years old, shining shoes in a bar on the south side of Chicago and he was on the jukebox. And then I take the audience from that little boy hearing Frank Sinatra on the jukebox on the south side of Chicago to one day carrying his coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills, California. Mm. Mm. So I take them on that journey. And it's all, it's funny stories, funny stories, poignant stories. But then I get them to the funeral and I have them in, in tears. And then I turn right around and I close with a funny monologue and I have them laughing. <clears throat> and then I toast them at the end. I say, I wish for all of you what Frank Sinatra wished for you, the very last song that he ever sang is that the best is yet to come. Good night, everybody. And Frank is singing, the best is yet to come, you know, as they're leaving the theater. Oh, wow. I can't wait to see the show. And when it comes back, I bet others will too. Tell us maybe one or two very different kinds of stories. We've heard a lot of stories about Frank Sinatra, but what are some stories that no one knows that you'd be willing to share? You know, there's so many. <clears throat> One of the things was how how benevolent he was. A lot of people know that Frank did certain charities, but there, there were so many they didn't know. He didn't want people to know. He did things in, in privacy, you know, um, and he wanted it kept that way. But he was generous beyond a fault. You, if you were a friend of Frank Sinatra's, you had to be very careful. You couldn't say, gee, I like your watch. He'd take it off and give it to you. Oh. You couldn't say, what a beautiful painting on the wall. He'd take it off the wall and hand it to you. His friends had to be very careful around him. 
One night we were coming out of the uh, Waldorf Astoria in New York. We were on our way to do a show. And we went out the back entrance because Frank, uh, if you went out the front door, he'd be mobbed. So they had to sneak us out the back door. And uh, there were, as we were rushing to the limo, security was taking us to the limo. A woman jumped out of the doorway. The doorman told me she had been there for like five hours. And uh, she started screaming, Mr. Sinatra, please, Mr. Sinatra, please. And uh, Frank was getting in the limo and the security was holding her back. So Frank turned around and he walked away from the security and, and said, went up to her and said, what is it? What is it? She said, my husband is home sick. If you could sign an autograph, it would mean the world to him. He's very ill. Frank said, sure. And he signed an autograph and she said, oh, what beautiful cufflinks. They were very expensive cufflinks, over $1,000. I know where he got them at. And he said, thank you. And he signed the autograph and he took the cufflinks off and he handed them to her and said, give these to your husband. She said, no, 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 no. I don't want, I don't want them. I was just admiring them. He said, I know, but I want your husband to have these. Now we get in the car in the limo and I said to him, Frank, that was beautiful, but why did you do that? He said, Tommy, if you possess something that you can't give away, then you don't possess it. It possesses you. And it's a lesson I never forgot. I never forgot. In, in the car, he said, Tommy, it's okay if somebody said, gee, I, I, uh, I like that, that car you're driving and you don't give him your car. He <laughs> said, but when you're alone in the mirror shaving and you're looking at that guy in the mirror, you got to admit to that guy in the mirror, that car owns you because you can't give it away. And, and, and the top of that story, he'd say, nothing we have is ours, Tommy. Mm. Nothing we have is ours. He said, Aristotle Onassis, the second he died, that mansion he had, those yachts that he had, those private jets, all that wealth, it all transferred. The second he died, it went to somebody else. So it wasn't his, he was just using it. <clears throat> and he said, and that's what we, 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 nothing we have is ours, we're only using it. What an incredible story. And you know, I can't help but think, uh, Tom, you learned so much from him. But what do you suppose Frank Sinatra in 14 years might have learned from you? Well, you know, he, he here's what I enjoyed about uh, making him laugh. He loved to laugh. And, and uh, oftentimes when we were alone in the car, it's hard to describe. We're, you know, I would stay at his compound. Now his compound had, it was a beautiful compound in Rancho Mirage and uh, with a, a, a swimming pool in the middle and tennis courts and all that. But around the outer perimeters were bungalows that were, were called Strangers in the Night, New York, New York, Tender Trap, My Way, uh, named after his songs. And all of his house guests would be there. And some nights he would come and get me like 3.30 in the morning and say, Tommy, let's take a ride. And we'd ride around the desert till the sun came up because he never went to bed till the sun came up. Whether we were on the road or off the road, Frank Sinatra never went to bed till the sun came up. He was nocturnal. But during those nights when I was alone with him, I wasn't Tom Vishen, the comedian who's been on all the Tonight Shows and all the TV shows. And he wasn't Frank Sinatra, the world international star. He was, I was a kid from Harvey, Illinois, and he was a kid from Hoboken. And that's how we talked. So I think, hmm. I, I don't know that he ever learned anything from me because he was such a learned man. But he, I always used to say to him, a sense of humor is the greatest gift that God can bestow upon a human being. Mm -hmm. And a sense of humor, by my humble definition, is not when you have the ability to laugh at other shortcomings or misfortunes. It's when you have the ability to laugh at your own, to laugh at yourself. I was on Hollywood Squares one time. I told him this story. And of 3,500 women polled, what's the number one characteristic you look for in a man? And the answer was a sense of humor. Mm. And he 
Uh, and so I talked about that. I'm laughing at yourself. When I when I go out on stage with him before him, oftentimes the first couple of jokes are on me. I learned to get the audience to laugh at me, you know, and, uh, and, and he saw that. So I'll give you a quick example for him. And one night we were in a bar in Palm Springs and Rancho Mirage. It was called Chaplin's Bar, a guy named Sidney Chaplin, who actually was Charlie Chaplin's son. Uh, and uh, he, he was up in years and he owned a bar. And uh, Frank would drink, to, you know, like I say, he stepped up on. So Sidney would just give Frank the keys to the bar and we'd stay in there, you know. And sometimes a bartender would stay with us because Frank was a big tipper. But we were supposed to lock the door at two o'clock. And then stay there till dawn. Well, one night Frank forgot to lock the front door, and as as we were talking, a, a station wagon pulled, and I was looking over Frank's shoulder, and I saw these two women in the car, probably in their sixties. And one woman got out; she came running in, and she walks up behind Frank Sinatra, and she said, "Do they have a jukebox in here?" And Frank turned around and he looked at this woman. He said, "I'm sorry, what did you say?" She said, "Do they have a jukebox in here?" And he looked around. And he said, "No." He said. I don't think so. He said, I'll sing for you. She said, no, thanks. And she turned around and she walked out. <laughs> oh. now he looked at her like a little boy going out the door. And I said, she obviously didn't recognize you. He said, maybe she did. Maybe she did. And <laughs> going to laugh at him. He laughed at himself. He got a big kick out of it. That's great. <laughs> you know, um, I want to go back to tying this together, uh, something you said about just, you know, at the end of the day, stuff is gone, no matter how wealthy you are, it's gone. You shared with me in that hour that you took over an hour pre-interviewing with me, you shared about your thoughts on, um, you know, that we're born with two things, an ego and a spirit. And you talked about which one should be your guide and why. I'd love you to talk about that. Well, you know, I, as you know, <clears throat> I told you that when I was in the service, you know, I was, I was a high school dropout. Um, you know, I was 16 years old. I was embarrassed how I was going to school, holes in my shoes. I started running with a tough crowd. At age 17, I went in the Navy and I got a high school diploma from the Navy. But I began to read every book I could find on positive mental attitude uh, to self-educate myself. I came from a negative background and I wanted to, to, to change all that in my life. And, I, and again, back in those days, I realized then that the secret is you. You're the secret. If it is to be, it's up to me. So I began reading all these self-help books. Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking, A Guide to Confident Living, uh, Maxwell Maltz, uh, Psycho-Cybernetics, um, Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Another book called The Power of Your Subconscious Mind by Joseph Murphy, which really, really, change the direction in my life. But all, all these self-help books, I, I used to read a lot about the yin and the yang, and I didn't understand what yin and yang, what's the yin and the yang. And then as I kept reading more, I began to realize that we're, we're two parts, you know, we're, we're, we're you know, sp spirit and we're ego, you know, that we're born pure spirit. You know, you don't know if you're boy or girl, black or white, Jew or Gentile, you don't know, you're just a spirit. And you love everything that loves you. You gravitate to, to things that love you, people that love you. And so you're a spirit. And well-intentioned adults, sometimes misinformed, start programming our computer. You know, little boys do this, little girls do this, we Catholics do this, we Jews do this. You, you, by the time you're about four or five years old, you start to develop an image of yourself based upon their information. Thus, the ego is formed. 
and the rest of your life, your ego and your spirit, your ego and your spirit, which one will dominate you? You know, I, I, I make the analogy, if you're driving in a car and a guy pulls out in front of you, you slam on the brakes and you start cursing, why are you moron, you idiot? That's your ego. Mm -hmm. Your spirit says, oh my God, I'm glad no one was hurt. I hope he's okay. I hope he has a good day. That's your spirit. I always say the ego is has an insatiable appetite. It, the ego cannot get enough fame, fortune, money, power. It simply cannot get enough. Mm -hmm. It will drive you to destruction because the ego cannot get enough. The spirit, conversely, is like the song of the 70s. All I need is the air that I breathe and to love you. That's all your spirit needs. And that's who you try to, I try to stay in touch with my spirit. A lot of people call it, depending on your on your religious beliefs, you know, it could be your, your center, your, your spirit, it could be the, the Jesus in you. But whenever I get into certain situations, sometimes, or I, as you know, I'm Irish and Italian, so that temper will rise sometimes and I'll start to react from my ego and I'll have to back off and say, whoa, whoa, settle down. Let your spirit answer this. Let your spirit be your guide as the old cliche is. So that's the yin and the yang in this, our ego and our spirit. Get in touch with that spirit. Again, the inner journey is far more exciting than the outer journey. That's great. That's great wisdom. I call all those things we're talking about your teachable points of view, Tom, those things that we're always teaching other people, things from our own experience. And you've mentioned several of them already. Another one was uh, just talking about letting ego take over sometimes. You said that know when to stop things that might be my words now, you said it much more eloquent, eloquently, but when you know there's a derailer that could keep you from being successful, recognize it, stop and make changes. Did that yes. ever happen uh, in your life in terms of recognizing something you needed to pivot or switch or change so that you could allow that spirit to take over more often? Absolutely. <clears throat> a very profound moment in my life. <clears throat> Excuse me again. <clears throat> a very profound moment in my life. I was with the comedy team six years. Tim Reed and I were America's first black and white comedy team. History shows we were the last. And when the team broke up, it, it broke my heart. It was almost like a broken marriage because I had never been on stage alone. And I thought that Tim and I were going to become this great, successful comedy team. <clears throat> Again, excuse me. <clears throat> Let me take a drink of water here. This is when you were young, too, right out of... Uh, you certainly hadn't hit with Frank Sinatra or any of that. So how old were you at this no. point? It was it was in my late 20s, but um, I was... The, after the comedy team stood up, my wife wanted me out of show business. She did not want... I was married at the time. She did not like show business at all. And I don't blame her. It was a precarious business and... and um, and the journey was going to be a lot of struggle. And we had a wife and three, I had a wife and three kids. And she wanted me to get a stable job in a factory somewhere and bring a check home every Friday like her father did for his whole life, a good man. <clears throat> so now the team breaks up. Tim Reed decided to split up the team. And, it, and again, it, it broke my heart. I'm sitting in a bar with my buddies at two o'clock in the morning drinking beer. I like to drink beer in those days. I really enjoyed having a few beers and hanging out with the guys. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Anyhow, so I'm sitting at the bar. It's two o'clock in the morning, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do? I I was always good at facing my problems and just trying to figure out a way how I could, you know, I, I was I always felt there's always a solution to every problem. 
and I was good at options. So I sat, I was sitting at the bar with two beers in front of me. Guys were buying beers back and forth. And I thought, okay, I could find another black guy and do the act that we were doing, or I could go it alone and be a stand-up comedian, or I could uh, do what my wife wants, quit this dream of mine and get a job in the factory and put all this behind me. Hmm. And sitting at the bar, I said, I know what, I'm gonna try to be a stand-up comedian alone. I'd never been on stage by myself before. I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that. And then I set, said, and go, what, what would I do? Okay, I've become a stand-up comedian. And my goal was to get to the Johnny Carson show, the same show. Because in those days, wherever you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh yeah, you ever been on Johnny Carson? And if you hadn't <laughs> been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you just weren't a comedian. And, and one appearance on that show, your whole life changed in those days. So I'm sitting at that bar, drinking those beers and saying, okay, that's what I'm gonna be. I made up my mind, I wanna be a stand-up comedian. And I set my goal to be on The Tonight Show. I, would, I saw myself on The Tonight Show and that's what was my goal was. So then I remembered a book I read by Clement Stone, W. Clement Stone, called Positive Mental Attitude. And in it, he said, if you realize what you want in life, and if it's a noble endeavor, and you, that's what you want, then search your life and see if there's anything in your life that can deter you from that noble achievement and then get it out of your life. And I said at that bar, I said, what could stop me if I wanted to make it as a stand-up comedian, get to the Tonight Show, what could stop me? And I thought, alcohol, I love to drink. Mm. I love to hang out with the guys. And you can't be a sharp comedian if you're drinking all the time and, and you're waking up with hangovers and all that kind of stuff. So I thought alcohol is the only thing that could stop me. I pushed the two beers across the bar and my buddy who was standing by, he came up, his name is Jim Lepore. He's still my buddy to this day. He, he owned, his mom and dad owned a tavern and he came up and he said, you threw for the night, Tommy? I said, no, I quit. He said, for tonight. I said, no, I quit. He said, you quit. I said, I quit drinking. He said, yeah, right. I'll see you tomorrow night. And I never touched another drop till years, years went by after I was a huge success doing real well. I had a couple of beers one night and I said, I don't even like this. And so now I haven't had a drink in years, you know, but that's my story. That's a huge story. Wow. Just like that. Woo. Wish we could all do things just like that and pivot. Let me ask well, you. If you, have a noble, if you have a noble endeavor, something you really want to do, uh -huh. and more than anything in the world, and, and it, it overwhelms you because you know this is the right thing for you, yeah. then you've got you've to search and say, well, if that's what I want, what could stop me? What could possibly stop me? You know, if it's a noble endeavor, I don't say if you want to go rob a bank, you know. Right. No, that's that's really very, very powerful. Tom, what refuels you? All those nights, all those uh, crazy hours, all the drinking, all the stuff that goes on that we read about. Um, how did you not get into that? And how did you refuel yourself along the way? Well, you know, let me, let me tell you a great time uh, answering your question. Back when the comedy team stood up, I ended up coming out to the West Coast, out here to Hollywood, as all the comedians across the land, David Letterman, Jay Leno, um, you know, all, all these people that were trying to make it at that time. Johnny Carson had moved from New York City into the West Coast, so uh, out to California and Burbank. So all the comedians gravitated out here. Again, as I, I repeat myself, one appearance, Freddie Prince got a sitcom the next day, you know. Um, when I did one appearance on The Tonight Show, the following day, CBS signed me to a development deal and my whole life changed. I've never stopped working since that time. But when I came out here, it wasn't that easy. I ended up, I thought that I'd be out here a few weeks and I'd get on at the comedy store where I could, you know, display my, my skills and try to get discovered. 
Well, I couldn't get on at the comedy store. It took me over a month. You have to sign up and, and do a five minute um, audition in front of the woman that owned it, Mitzi Shore. So it took me over a month. Now my wife wrote me a Dear John in the meantime. She wrote, I, I was, I, one time I was house sitting and then the people came back and I couldn't stay there anymore. She wrote me a letter there and told me, this is your dream, not mine. It's, it, it, you know, I wish you the best, but mm. goodbye. And this is it. Now I'm, I have no place to go. I end up sleeping in an abandoned car, a Nash Rambler where the front seat came down. It was up on blocks in this alley. I'd sleep there and I'd get up in the morning and go wash up and clean up at the, at the local gas station and then hitchhike up and down Sunset Boulevard, you know, begging to work for free at the comedy store. But at that time, I was at my lowest, lowest point. And I went back to the basics, what the nuns taught me to pray. I've always believed in a higher power. Uh, I didn't have a father that put his arm around me, uh, hugged me, uh, told me he loved me. I didn't have that kind of father. He, he, he was an alcoholic, a beer alcoholic, by the way. Uh, good guy, but he had, he had a demon, the, the, the alcohol. And that was more important to him than even his family sometimes. Uh, you know, again, we, we lived in a rat-infested, roach-infested shack. Sometimes, you know, we, we had no bathtub, no shower, no, no hot water, sometimes no heat. So I didn't have that kind of father. But the nuns taught us that we had a father in heaven. And as a little boy, six years old, I thought that was so wonderful that I have a father in heaven. And I used to pray as a little boy. I'd talk to that father and say, you know, and, and, and you know, help me, father, and, and, and believe with all my heart and soul that I did have a father in heaven, you know. And uh, so that's when I was down to my lowest, that's what got me back on my feet again. And it's a long answer to a short question, but that's what I, what I would do. I would, I would pray to the higher power and guide me, show me the way, show me some sign that I'm on the right track here. And almost always my prayers were answered, sometimes the following day, sometimes a month ago, but, but the prayer was answered. Mm -hmm. And it continues that way to this day. Well, as a, a woman of faith also, I will just say I do the same thing and he's never let us down. So it's uh, never gonna let you down. There's something that you enjoy outside of uh, your work has to do with baseball. Tell us about the pitch. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a big Chicago Cub fan, you know, uh, to a fault, you know. But uh, when I was a little boy, when I shined shoes in all the taverns and everything, my mom, I would bring the money home. And my mom, once in a while, would take a nickel out and put it in a cracked cup up in a cupboard. And when it got full, I could, uh, my brother and I, we could take the IC, Illinois Central downtown, to, and then the elevator over to Wrigley Field, and I'd sit in the bleachers and watch the Cubs play. God, it was just fascinating. Wrigley Field was like this, this incredible, it was like heaven to me from coming from the south side of Chicago. And you, you, you come up to a stop sign in this neighborhood, and to your right is a ballpark, and you walk into that magnificent arena in this neighborhood, you know, and sit in the seat and where, where your great-great-grandfather sat, where your great-grandfather sat, where your grandfather sat, where your father sat, you know, and you're going to watch the same game they watch. And for, for a moment, time stands still mm. at Wrigley Field. Yeah. So I had this love affair with the Cubs. And years went by, and Jim Fry, when he was managing the Cubs, um, I was used to do a lot of shows. I was first president of the Die Hard Cub fan club and stuff like that. And one day he said to me, you know, how did, how did you become such a love affair with the Cubs? And I told him about my childhood, like I just told you. And I said, I used to sit in that bleachers and say, God, would I love to be a bat boy? Look at that bat boy. He gets to be on the field. And 
my brother Glenn used to say, oh, they don't let kids like us, Tommy. They, you know, they let the rich kids from the north side be bad boys. And um, anyhow, when I told Jim Fry that story, he said, well, you'll be my bad boy. And he let me be bad boy four times a, a, a year, like four days in a row at Wrigley Field. And from that, I was able to you know, hit batting practice, run around the bases and catch fly balls. And then I get to throw out the first pitch. And I still do that to this day. And then now they have me sing, take me out to the ball game in the seventh inning at Wrigley Field. Uh, Joe Montaigne and I are tied for most times doing it as a celebrity. Harry Carey used to do it. Harry passed away. Now they let celebrities. So to go back to, I mean, it, 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 everything comes in full circle, doesn't it? I was sh on my hands and knees, shining shoes and bars, listening to Frank Sinatra and Jukebox. Come fly with me. And then I flew with them all around the world. A little boy sitting in the bleachers. I, I dreamed that one day I'd be a bad boy. And I became a bad boy. Mm. <laughs> so uh, everything comes full circle if you believe and if you pray. Mm. Having someone that's lived such a A to Z life and you're still going and you're still standing up. You're still doing it. For those of you who are watching this and listening, the book is called again, Still Standing, Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage in Sinatra. I want to thank you again from the bottom of my heart for gracing us as an audience and me as the host of this show. I know you're going to continue and lots more stories to share. Maybe we'll have you back on for even more stories. And I wish you all God's blessings, Tom. Thank you. Is there any final thing you would like to say to the audience or for those who are thinking about show business or being a comedian? What advice would you give to them? Well, number one, study the masters. If you were to become a brain surgeon, you wouldn't just, you know, uh, study brain surgery, you, you would watch the brain surgeon operate, you know, study the masters. If you, if whatever you want to be, uh, if, if you want to be a comedian, you watch other comedians work and, 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 and how they approach from one subject to another. So you study the masters and in the same way if, in any endeavor that you want to be in, but go to somebody, say you want to be a doctor, you want to be a nurse or you want to be a, a, an engineer or whatever it is you want to be in life read books about people who succeeded in that endeavor. And, and, and if you ever get an opportunity, you know, you find someone in that endeavor, ask them, say, could I ask you for some advice? I never hesitated to ask senior comedians. You know, uh, I would go knock on a dressing room door and introduce mm -hmm. myself and say, I'm a new comedian. Could you give me some advice? Almost always they'd say, of course, sit down or, mm -hmm. and, and give you advice. So don't be afraid to, you know, first of all, number one, never be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to fail because we're going to all fail a lot along our journey. But but find someone in your in the, in the, in the profession you want to be in and ask them for help. Say, help me. Show me. Help me. You'll be surprised how much people will want to help you. Mm -hmm. That's so true. And and the other thing that rem this reminds me of, Tom, is that when someone is real and comes from the right place internally that spirit side more so than the ego side we got both going on i know that but they are people like you who will talk to others and many of us watching today including me have a really hard time asking because we feel like or i'm told from my coaching clients well i don't want to go to mr big because he's too busy well it's the mr bigs that are the ones that can't wait to share their wisdom if they are those kind of people. And those are the only kind of people you want to ask anyway. Do you agree with that, Tom? 
I totally agree. And so what, what's the worst someone's going to say is no. Yeah. You know, when I sold life insurance, I found out that I sold every 10th person. So every every no I got was one no closer to the yes. So so if you, if you approach somebody and, and they turn you down or turn their back on you and, and it frightens you, don't be afraid to fail. Ask somebody else. Someone is going to reach out to you. I, I guarantee you that more success, you know, um, Remember this, small people try to belittle your ambitions. Mm. Successful people want you too to become successful. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the, um, I'm just thinking about a, a gentleman that has become a friend uh, named Kerry Stinson. He was the purple dinosaur, uh, Barney the purple dinosaur for a long time, and he's become friends, huh? and now he's got a podcast, and he said to me, Valerie, I am determined that you are really going to be successful with it, with this show because you're doing it right <laughs> and your heart is in the right place. And, and we talk often and he'll say, this is what I've learned and this is what I want you to do and this is what I want you to try. I would never have thought again, someone like that man is famous too, would take the time to mentor me in this new thing I'm doing called podcasting. So. Again, audience, just remember what Tom has said and all the many, many lessons we've learned together today. Tom, thank you. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Valerie. It really was uh, fun getting to know you, and I'm sure that we're going to see each other again somewhere along the way. Thanks so much. I'm coming out to California as soon as I get on a plane, visit my son who's in California. <laughs> and you can see on the screen, audience, and those listening, you can see where you can contact Tom and uh, do so. And when COVID is over, you be sure and see his one-man one stand-up show telling all the stories about his life and Frank Sinatra's story. And again, the book, go get it. It's really a good book, Still Standing, Tom Dreesen with Frank Sinatra. That's it for now. You just stay real. Take to heart all the things that you've seen today and heard from Tom and come back next time when we'll have a, another super guest. Bye for now. Okay, here's my Valerieism for today. It's never too late. Be enthused for what you can do on your next journey. It's never too late. Think about Grandma Moses. Let me tell you why I thought I'd talk about this. You know, in my work uh, now doing executive coaching, there aren't any workshops going on right at the moment on leadership, but I'm still doing a lot of executive coaching and I'm often hearing my coaches say, oh, I, I wish I could do X, or when I get closer to retirement, I wanna plan for B, but oh, I don't know, well, of this and of that. And then they're spiraling down into the thoughts about what they maybe can't do, maybe shouldn't do, maybe don't have the money for, I don't care what it is. If you've got a dream, you've got a next chapter. We all do. And it can be as simple as spending more time with family. It can be as simple as writing a legacy book, like I talked about on my podcast today, a book about Tom Dreesen. It can be as simple as whatever, but it can also be a big dream, like taking a new business, starting something that's a nonprofit, working within a nonprofit. It doesn't matter what it is. My message to you is it's never too late. We are on a journey until the day we are put under. So go for it. Don't let anybody, including yourself, 
say it's too late because it's not. That's my Valerieism for today. Thanks for listening. To receive Valerie's voice, free monthly leadership tips, and to learn more about her leadership programs and coaching, visit her website, ValerieAndCompany.com. Next week, we'll be here again to inspire, engage, and equip you with teachable points of view from successful leaders who have been doing it right. Until then, lead authentically.